Welcome back. I'm Carrie. And I'm Cassandra. And we're too good to be true. And this week I'm going to be talking about something that I'm pretty sure we've all been touched by in some way or another. We all know an addict or know someone who's been affected by someone with an addiction. And a lot of that comes down to how those drugs were marketed and the deception and the fraud that played into it with Purdue Pharma. So I'm just going to jump right in. So there were originally three Sackler brothers named Arthur, Raymond, and Mortimer. And they grew up in Flatbush, which is like a little neighborhood kind of in Brooklyn, New York, and they were the sons of European immigrants. All three boys went to medical school. And then in the 1940s, the eldest son, Arthur, was working at Creedmoor Psychiatric Hospital in Queens, and he brought his brothers in to work there, too, because they would often do that. Like, one of them would start somewhere and bring the other two in. Okay. While they worked there, they were administering electroshock therapy to patients, but they didn't like it because it was crude and inhumane, and I agree. So they wanted to find alternative ways to treat mental illness. They figured mental illness was caused by the chemical makeup of the brain, which they're correct. <laughs> and so they thought if it had a chemical problem, it probably had a chemical solution. All makes sense so far. And they felt that there wasn't any affliction they couldn't make a pill for. So Purdue Pharma originated from the Purdue Frederick Company, established in 1892 in New York City by doctors John Purdue Gray and George Frederick Bingham. And they kind of produced these tonics. They had one with sherry and glycerin, some other some other little mixes. You know, it, it was way back in the day, you know, before modern medicine. So that's kind of what they were doing. Tonics, elixirs, different things, mixing them up in the little drinks. And Yeah, they had like those little like bottles that right. were like kind of like a brown color or something right right and they would just call it like medicinal elixirs i guess or whatever i don't yeah. know yeah well in 1952 the business was sold to raymond and mortimer sackler who shifted the company to yonkers new york and arthur sackler that older brother owned a one-third option which his brothers bought after his death the Sacklers then expanded the business to New Jersey and Connecticut with its headquarters located in Stamford, Connecticut. Arthur also acquired a medical marketing company and began to market their drugs. He would hire doctors as pitchmen to sell to other doctors. And he even paid a division head at the FDA or the Food and Drug Administration, if you're not from here, you don't know what that is, to promote his drugs. He also would make up fake expert witnesses and include them in his ads. He would have a bunch of doctors' names listed saying they approved and they did this and that. And there'd be, you know, one in New York and one in Maine and, like, different states and stuff. But at one point, an investigative journalist reached out to the doctors on an ad and found out that none of them actually existed. So, like, he was just making the rules. Just making shit up. Mm -hmm. Just making them up. I mean, but you think about it. Whenever you do see an ad for uh, medication or whatever, and they have an expert talking about it, do do you really Google them? Because I don't. That's. I mean, that's true. Like I've never sat and been like, "Oh, let me see. Is this person like an actual doctor?" Or right. you know, whatever. Right. That's crazy. So he's just like 
listing people on there. That's right. And even and back then, it would have dealt people. It would have been even harder to really know because you didn't have Google. It, it came down to this this journalist actually physically dialing phone numbers to try and find these people. Now it's easier, but when you think about it, when it's like it would be so incredibly time consuming if every ad that we saw for medication, which if you're listening to us from other countries, I know other countries aren't as crazy as the United States with the way that they advertise medication. Other countries say it's kind of wild how how many medication ads that we will have, like just for us. straight up on TV. For us, it's just normal. It's just an everyday part of life. But for them, they're like, what the fuck? Yeah, it's weird. It, it is weird. I'm thinking if something does what it's supposed to do, then your doctor's just going to prescribe it. And they're to just going to give it to you with like marketing. Yeah, why do you need to market it to us and advertise it when like... If market it to the doctors. Exactly. That's 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 what I was saying. That doesn't even make sense. Like you'd think they'd just be going into hospitals and being like, hey, this is our product. This is what it does. Like why do they got to come right to us? Like that doesn't even make sense. Right. Well, in the 1960s, Sackler began pushing addictive tranquilizers like Valium and Librium for everyday anxiety. And there's even that running joke, too, you know, the the um, the Valium mom, you know, of the 1960s, the mom who's just super chill and out of it, loopy because she's on drugs. This is where this came from. Right. And he became very rich off the sale of those drugs. And when addiction to those drugs got out of hand, his marketing strategies were investigated, but he blamed the problem on reckless patients. Basically, patients abusing drugs. They didn't have to do it, and they chose to do it. Purdue Pharma LP, as we know it, the present-day company, was incorporated in 1991 and specialized in pain relief medications. It referred to itself as a pioneer in developing medications for reducing pain, a principal cause of human suffering. And at this point, you know, the Sacklers, they, they have their children and everything. And, and um, Richard Sackler, who was Raymond's son, was involved in a lot of this, specifically later on with the Oxycontin stuff. Yeah, I've heard a lot about that stuff. Yeah. And it's important to note that Purdue Pharma is not affiliated with Purdue University, a distinction the university has made very clear because they want to avoid association. Because they're like, no way, hands off, we have nothing to do with that. Right. The corporation encompasses multiple entities, including Purdue Pharma LP, Purdue Frederick Company, Purdue Pharmaceutical Products LP, and Purdue Products LP. And they produce various pain medicines, including oxycodone, hydromorphone, fentanyl, codeine, and hydrocodone, which are sold under brand names such as MS Contin, Oxycontin, and Rizold. Contin, a controlled drug release system, was developed in 1972, which was later followed by MS Contin and extended release formulation of morphine in 1984. And the way they made it extended release was to put this coating over it that would dissolve slowly. So when you take the pill, it only dissolves so much. And you get it kind of like a constant string so of medication. Yeah. Right. It's like time. So instead of all of it hitting you all at once and then wearing off, you get a steady stream of a low dose of it over time to help control your pain for a longer period of time without giving you the effect of getting high. I mean, that makes sense. If you use it correctly, yeah. Right. 
1996, the extended release formulation of oxycodone, OxyContin, was introduced after receiving FDA approval under the leadership of Curtis Ray. The introduction of OxyContin coincided with the Pain as the Fifth Vital Sign campaign by the American Pain Society, which was later adopted by the Veterans Health Administration as their national pain management strategy. So when you go, like, they're still in offices today. When you go to the doctor, you see that little chart of smiley faces. Yeah, yeah, no, they're talking about and you got the... The smiley guy, and then the kind of not okay guy, and then all the way towards the end, you have the really sad guy. That's your pain. That's your pain scale. You're like they say the the fifth vital sign, and as you're checking, what are the other four? Heart rate, blood pressure. Um, there's two more. Your heart rate, your blood pressure, your oxygen level. I think might be one of them. And I'm not sure. There's a fourth one, but they added this as the fifth. Right. And the drug was presented as a safe choice for pain management. Wright allowed Purdue to say the drug was not addictive or prone to abuse. The crazy part is that Purdue executives stayed at a hotel near Wright's office for three days in order to work with him to draft the FDA's official review of OxyContin, which is unheard of and not legal and not okay, not ethical in any way. A drug company should not be writing its own review for the FDA. They shouldn't be involved in writing yeah, you to say whether they are approved or not. That seems a little sketch. It kind of defeats the entire purpose of the FDA's review. They're supposed to be an unbiased third party. Yeah, like their opinion should be like separate from like those people shouldn't be involved. Should be completely objective. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And just a little over a year after leaving the FDA, Wright was hired by the Sacklers to work for Purdue. Shot of everyone. course. Wow, I'm shook. <laughs> he was paid a salary of over $370,000. However, Purdue Pharma's drugs have been at the center of controversy due to their high potential for addiction. Oxycodone is the drug that is considered to have triggered the opioid addiction crisis that we have in America. Correct. And through the discovery of hidden documents and depositions, evidence has been found that shows the Sacklers hit the dangers of their drugs. MS-Contin and OxyContin are the most commonly abused drugs manufactured by the company, as they can be easily abused through crushing, chewing, snorting, or injecting the dissolved product leading to overdose and death. So one of the main ways people will do it um, would be to crush it, or mix it with some water and a spoon, heat it up, heat it up, and then, and then inject it straight into their nose. And this is, in pill form, it's more or less heroin in a pill. Or so I've heard. Yes. I, I'm, like, trying to think if I've ever been prescribed, like, a painkiller that's that strong before. I maybe have. Yes. Um, I was prescribed morphine when I broke my leg. And I hated it. It made me so sick. I threw up. I only took one pill. Threw the rest away, I believe. And I, I've been on various pain medications throughout the last decade. Because as you know, and as anybody who's been listening for a while would know, I do have a chronic pain condition. I have fibromyalgia. And I've been on Oxy. And I've been on hydrocodone or Lortabs, as they're more commonly called. Mm-hmm. 
5 also benotramadol which is a synthetic opioid. And they're all highly addictive. For a while, they were even saying tramadol wasn't as addictive. It was safe because it's not a real opioid. But it is. Okay. Surely. It is. And it's very easy. There's a difference between dependence and addiction. But it's, it's very easy to become dependent on it. I was on tramadol for a week after I broke my leg because for the longest time, for the first week, I tried to make do with just Tylenol and ibuprofen because I didn't want to be on that shit. Exactly. And then... I finally caved and was like, you got to give me something stronger. I can't take it. I'm just sitting, you know, in agony all day, every day. And I don't even have anything to distract me because I cannot walk. So they gave me tramadol. This was the second time I was on tramadol. And I really wasn't wild about going on it. I knew what was going to happen because I had been on it once before for a neck strain. My body gets very dependent on it very quickly. And even taking it just that one week, once I stopped taking it, I went through, I went through withdrawal. You know, I was, I had insomnia, I had night sweats, I had the craziest restless leg. It was just god-awful, and I couldn't imagine actually being really addicted and having to come down from that. And, yeah, I can only imagine. I think the only time I ever had, like, really strong painkillers was after I gave birth both times. Well, gave birth one time, the other time I had a C-section, but... Most of that was just in the hospital, like through intravenous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I did have morphine, and I hated it. It made me want to throw up. Morphine is terribly worse. I would never, by choice, use that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, a lot of them had moved to, to using Dilaudid instead. And I've yeah. been told that that's better. It's a better experience. But whenever I was on Oxy for the different pain and stuff that, that I had, it, it does give you a very euphoric high. Like, you're very happy, you're very giggly, you're very talkative, you you know, everything is great and gives you that, that like, serotonin boost. And I, I just remember it, it made me very itchy, specifically my face and my nose. Like, you and you might see that, too. I've with seen, addicts, with seeing them. Yeah, I was going to say, I've seen that. that. That they call it the oxy-itch. Interesting. I always wondered why, like, because I've seen that, like, it literally looks like burns on their face almost because they just... Mm-hmm. And meth will cause that too, yeah. but oxy and opioids will cause that. And I tried, you know, I try to stay away from it, no matter oh, what's yeah. going on. I, I don't ask for that because I know the dangers of addiction. And let me tell you, I do enjoy the high. I'm not going to lie. I enjoy the high from them. So that's why I try to stay away from them because... You don't want that. You don't want to be right. addicted to something like that. It's very easy. It is a nice high. So I'm just saying, if you're out there, if you're considering it, you're going to feel great, yeah, in that moment. But afterwards, no. Awful. Yeah. And you don't want to end up getting addicted to it because it's just not worth it. Addicts often engage in doctor shopping to obtain additional prescriptions and refuse to follow up with appropriate examinations. So they'll go to an ER and claim the severe pain and they'll get their fix and then they're on their way and then they go to a pain management clinic and then they go to another one and then they see another doctor and they just keep they drown doctor to doctor and get all these prescriptions so some red flags that people could look out for where's their prescription from you know you got a loved one and you look at their prescription bottle for oxy and you see that that prescription is for two or three hundred miles away they probably have a problem because they're driving around to different doctors and they're doctor shopping yeah if you have to go that far away to get your drugs, then you have a problem. Right. 
Additionally, patients prescribed these drugs may develop physical dependency, like I said, reduced reaction or drug desensitization, which is where basically tolerance, just right. like with weed or anything like that. After a while, five milligrams just doesn't do it. And then you need to up to 10 and then you're up to 20 and then you're in 30 and it's just a continuing cycle. So it's really not good to be on them long term because right. that's what's going to happen. And they're not good for you in high dosage or for long-term use. And the drug companies know that, but they don't promote them that way. Exactly. And that's what we're going to get into. That's the problem. Purdue Pharma's marketing strategy for OxyContin aggressively pressed doctors to prescribe the drug, offering them free trips to pain management seminars and paid speaking engagements. The drug was marketed as having lower abuse potential than immediate release oxycodone due to its time-release properties even though there was zero scientific evidence supporting this claim. Now, they knew. They knew that people were abusing the drug. They knew that they were stripping off this, the, uh, the sealant to, that would keep it from releasing all at once. They knew they were crushing it. They knew they were sorting it. They knew they were injecting it. They knew all of this stuff, but despite being aware of that and knowing that there were people out there getting it off the streets, that it was being diverted, and that there were pill mills out there, they were continuing to market the drug heavily. So these pill mills popped up, and I'm going to talk briefly about that because I worked at one. No shit. Um, the pill mills, and these are doctors that they get the drug and they just give it to anybody. They will take cash for it. They will take sex for it. They, you go in and they just say, you're here for your oxy. And you go, yeah. And they say, how much? And you tell them and they get it and they give it to you because, and they don't care because this is money to them. This is money. This is yeah. a money-making business. And they also will accept kickbacks and stuff from the pharmaceutical reps for prescribing higher and more doses of this stuff. So I briefly worked at one. It was a pain management clinic. And I was a young adult at the time, and I was going through a temp agency for work. I can't remember what job I had left, but I was in between jobs. And I got assigned to go to this pain management clinic. Now, I can't tell you the name of it. I can't remember. It was so long ago. I don't know. I do know what city it was in, but I won't say that either on the show. But um, I started there, and immediately just red flags they wanted me to be in the x-ray room with no covering they said that the covering was for the doctor or the nurse but i had to be in the same room without the covering and then they expected me to clean up bodily fluids just to no straight up with nothing no protective stump line oh and then the final kicker that made me not go back was when they told me that sometimes the doctor is busy and so he leaves a prescription pad up here and we're just supposed to forge his signature and give these people their pills. I'd be like, oh, hell no. I'm I get in trouble with your bullshit. So this was kind of at the height of this, too. This was like early 2000s. Right. His stuff was really starting to get bad. And at the time, you know, I was kind of naive to the fact that that was happening. You know, I didn't know, and it wasn't really being widely reported, so nobody really was aware of that. Also, I was a young adult, so I didn't know how to handle this situation. Now, if this happened now, to me, as a 30-something-year-old adult, I would know immediately to leave and contact the state medical board and report them. But I didn't know that as basically a child, So, and I, I didn't get a lunch break. 
they they didn't give anybody lunch breaks. They said we're so busy we just work through lunch. Had I gotten a lunch break, I would have left, but I didn't. So I worked the day and uh, just ghosted them and just never went back. <laughs> I mean, I think I would have done the same thing. But I mean, I get your point of like you're you're young, you're naive, you didn't realize exactly what you were getting into, but like you were smart enough to know, hey, something is not right with this and it didn't sit well with you so you were like after one day you're like i'm peace out. yeah i didn't even care that i needed the money and i was just like nope I, I didn't even go back to collecting checks to be honest i don't know if i ever got paid for that one day and i didn't care or i wasn't about to be forging some doctor's signature and prescribing oxy to fucking people that i didn't even know no. and i didn't have the legal right to do that yeah and you don't know what issues they have or non-issues they have or if they're just addicts right. coming there to get their fix and i wouldn't want to be involved in that either that's insane mm-hmm. well reports of oxycontin abuse emerged in 2000 and a study published in the new england journal of medicine in 2012 found a direct link between purdue's marketing of oxycontin and the subsequent heroin epidemic in the united states between 1995 and 2001 oxycontin brought in 2.8 billion dollars in revenue for Purdue Pharma. By 2017, that had increased to $35 billion. Wow. I watched a documentary on it called The Crime of the Century. It's on HBO. And in that, they talked to Mark Ross, who was a pharmaceutical rep for Purdue after he was hired by Mark Radcliffe. He started in April 1998, having signed on to sell OxyContin. The company really stressed selling Oxy because too many people were being undertreated or not treated at all for pain. His first year, Mark made about $170,000. He said it was an easy sell and commission because after patients got hooked on the pills, the doctors would write a continuing prescription and need more. Which, I mean, that makes sense. It, it's easy. I mean, I get it, but it's like, that's truly fucked up. You know what I mean? Right. His final year, Mark made about $300,000. Doctors were told there was no cap on how much of the drug patients could take. Are you for real? And for real. Like, I can't even believe that. That's... Nope, they said if, if what they're taking isn't enough, just take more. Just give them some more. I think it's fine. They also said that less than 1% of patients had become addicted. Bullshit. Exactly. We know this to be just a flat-out fucking lie at this point. This next guy is going to piss you off, just so you know. Okay. (laughs) Dr. Lynn Webster was the medical director of Life Tree Pain Clinic. He was drawn in by Oxy and began to lecture on the drug. He helped in marketing it and said the drug wasn't the problem, but that abuse of the drug was the problem. He said that most people who are prescribed opioids won't become addicted regardless of how long they're on them, which is pure horseshit. True. The company claimed that even when patients seemed to be addicted, they were actually what they called pseudo-addicted. They just kind of made up this word. What the fucking hell? Yeah, yeah I was going to say, that's some made-up bullshit. And that was coined by a Dr. Haddox, and he said that that's when patients look like drug addicts, but they're only looking for pain relief. They appear to be drug addicts, but they're not really drug addicts. They're just people who are in a lot of pain and are seeking help. Right. So, I don't think so, yeah. sir. He said, for those patients, the doctor should just up the dosage. Are you surreal? They're out here like, they're going to start killing people. This is 
insane. And that's up next. Roy Bosley's wife, Carol, was a patient at Life Tree Pain Clinic after a bad car accident. Her and their son, I think his name was Michael, were driving one day, and an elderly lady ran a red light, and they T-boned her. And she had to have a surgery to repair her neck. And she was prescribed Oxy at this pain clinic by Dr. Webster. And Roy, the husband, he said that she'd get loopy after taking her medicine and he'd pass out after. And then after the fact, she would forget that she took it. And so she would take it to the more. And she wouldn't believe him that that was happening. So he started taking photos of her in the various places that she was passed out to prove to her this is a problem. And she agreed and she got off the pill. Well, one day they went back to Life Tree where Dr. Webster told them that chronic pain patients cannot get addicted and that she was under his care. He would prescribe what he saw fit. And Dr. Webster sounds like a fucking asshole. And then Carol died of an overdose in 2009. Are you serious? The, the day before Thanksgiving. This is ridiculous. He could have prevented this, but no, he's just like, you know what? If you have chronic pain, you just take more. And you can't get addicted if you have chronic pain. And you can't get addicted. It That's impossible. fucking work that way. He sounds as fucking stupid as the guy who said that when a woman is raped, she can't get pregnant because her body will react. And react in a way that... That was the adults now doesn't happen yet. That's how, that's how fucking stupid he sounds. And you know what? He still stands behind his shit. He's interviewed in the documentary. He's got no remorse. He will not take accountability for this at all. Science, you stupid dumb fuck. Yep. At a certain oh point, God. Purdue was selling so much oxy that they were running out of opium, so they went to Johnson and Johnson. Johnson and Johnson had a unique way of getting opium from poppy plants that got more out of them faster. They also had genetically modified the plants to make a super poppy, so there was more available. Good lord! And they had farmers in Tasmania that were farming this stuff for them. And they offered luxury vacations and cars to those farmers in Tasmania to get them to switch from farming potatoes to farming opium. So they basically just went out bribing. Fucking real. Like, literally, they're just out there bribing these people. And being like, no, you don't want to do this. You want to do this because we will give you all of this mm -hmm. kickbacks and whatever. Rubbing them, yes. You farm this for us instead. Oh, my God. So we remember Mark Ross, the pharmaceutical rep who was selling it. Well, he began to hear stories about overdoses. So he tried to warn the company because at first he didn't realize that that he was contributing to this problem. problem yeah. And then after he started hearing about the overdoses, he was like, oh shit, this is more addictive than they said this is a problem. And he tried to award the company and they just ignored him. Of course they did. Because they're like, they don't give a shit, they're getting paid. Yep, so in comes Dr. Art Van Z. Now, Dr. Art Van Z worked at Stone Mountain Health Services in Lee County, Virginia, one of the hardest hit areas of the op uh, opioid epidemic. So he also tried to warn of overdose deaths and addiction. He received a response from Purdue with two of the correspondents being ex-FDA members, well, FDA employees, now working for Purdue. One was Curtis Wright, the one that helped them write their own review for the drug to get it passed by the FDA. Of course, they made it clear 
to Dr. Vanzi that they weren't going to change anything. Dr. Haddix, the one that coined the pseudo-addiction phrase, actually met with Dr. Vanzi and offered him $100,000 for the area's addiction problems. They thought they could just... Make them disappear. Get them disappear, pay their way out of it. So, Dr. Van Z started working on a petition for the FDA to recall Oxy due to the addiction issues. He even went before the Senate hoping for change, but Senator Chris Dodd of Connecticut, now remember, their headquarters is in Stamford, Connecticut. So Senator Chris Dodd of Connecticut, a big supporter of Purdue, of course, because it's bringing in a lot of revenue for his state, said that the problem was drug abusers in rural areas, not Oxy. I can't even believe any of these people. Afterward, Purdue gave Dodd a campaign contribution that was 10 times more than any they'd given to any other politician. Well, of course they did, because he's making them money by claiming that everything they're doing is fine. It's not their problem. It's the people using the oxy that is the problem. Right. It's not that the drug is addictive. It's just right. people just abuse it. Yeah. Well, at this point, they kind of needed some serious PR help because these reports of these overdoses were coming out. So Purdue hired former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani to help them with their PR crisis after some doctors became afraid to prescribe Oxy, which I don't blame them. And at least two giant supermarkets, I guess, they refused to carry it because they were concerned about robberies. They didn't want people breaking in. I don't know what the supermarkets were, but it brought two big chains. I mean, rightfully so, because it's becoming an issue. A metal issue. And in Naples, Florida, Purdue sent Stephanie Kaufman to push the drug using a patient as a poster child for heavy use. She asked Gary Blinn, a recovering heroin addict who she just happened to meet at a pain management clinic, he, he was trying to find relief for back pain. She asked him to switch to their drugs. She said they'd cover the cost as long as he switched to Oxy instead of whatever he was on. She also told him that he could just keep taking more and more until he got enough pain relief and that the threat of overdose was low. I can't even believe that they would say something like that to somebody. She is insane. I can't even with this information. And the thing is, like, this is how people get into trouble. Like, I I know this for a fact. Like, I'm not going to get, like, personal. But, like, I know this for a fact. Because people have pain. And then they're prescribed these pills. And then if they can't get any more pills, because heroin has the same goddamn effect, they go and they, if they can't get pills, they go and they get the fucking heroin. Because they can get it. It's like... It's so fucking frustrating. And it's like these drug pushers don't realize that, like... They realize it. They don't care. They don't care. Yeah, you're right. You know what, Jeremy? You're right. They don't care. They don't They're like, fuck it. I don't care. Let these people get addicted. Let them have problems. Let their whole fucking life fall apart. Because we're making money. Exactly. So Gary, having been a previous heroin addict, he had a high tolerance, like I said. Of course he's good about tolerance. Shit tons of these. Gary eventually was up to taking 50 pills a day, the equivalent of 200 hits of heroin per day. That's unbelievable. Purdue used Gary as a marketing example to show other doctors that no dose was too high. Yeah, because he has a high tolerance. They don't care. 
they see somebody who can take this high dose and he's not dying, he's functioning, he's still living his daily life. So they say, look at Gary over there. He's taking 50 pills a day. It's like a just fine. Former heroin user, you know. But this does damage to your body too over Of life. course, that's what I was going to say. These drugs are just as bad and they're marketing up like they're not, but they're just as bad and just as addictive. And Connecticut Attorney General Richard Blumenthal made a statement in 2001 urging Purdue to, make, to take measures against the abuse of OxyContin. He acknowledged that although Purdue appeared genuine in its efforts, it was only taking superficial and symbolic actions. When Purdue declared its intention to alter the drug's formulation, Blumenthal acknowledged that this would require time, but emphasized that Purdue Pharma has a moral responsibility, if not a legal one, to take concrete measures to combat addiction and abuse while simultaneously working on the drug's reformulation. And that's a direct quote from him. Tell care. In 2003, the Drug Enforcement Administration, or as we know them, DEA, stated that Purdue had exasperated the abuse of Oxy by using aggressive methods of selling the drug. So now the DEA is like, you're doing something wrong here. It, that's very true, though. You know what I mean? Like, I'm glad that somebody stepped in. Well, they're getting into a shitload of stuff now. In 2004, the West Virginia Attorney General filed a lawsuit against Purdue seeking compensation for the state's excessive prescription costs. Now, they did, too these West Virginia, Virginia, um, Kentucky, the areas that had the coal mining, a lot of, a lot of mining situation going on now, they were really hard hit by this stuff because they're doing a very physical, a very demanding, right. labor intensive job. job. They're having injuries and it, the, the prescription is, it's just running rampant. They, they're being told that there's no Potential for abuse, they're being told that only 1% or less than 1% of people become addicted. They're told that there's no cap, that there's no limit, that they can just take this wonder miracle drug and everything's going to be fine and we're going to treat the pain. And so they're prescribing and prescribing and prescribing and then people are getting hooked. And so these states had just an excessive problem and they still do. I can only imagine because these people are thinking that this is like the answer to all their problems. Mm -hmm. The state claimed that patients were taking more OxyContin than prescribed due to the drug's effects wearing off before the scheduled 12-hour interval, and they accused Purdue of deceptive marketing. And it does rightfully so. The more you take it, the faster it does wear off for you. Mm -hmm. And then you need a higher dose, and you need to take it more free writing. And that's how addiction gets started, and you, you don't even know it. You don't even realize at first what's even happening to you. Until yeah. it's too late. Yeah. The presiding judge noted in his ruling that evidence presented by the plaintiff demonstrates that Purdue had the ability to test the safety and effectiveness of OxyContin at eight-hour intervals and update their label accordingly, but chose not to do so. The case was settled out of court with Purdue agreeing to pay the state $10 million, which in today's inflation rate would be equivalent to about $14.9 million. And they paid that to support programs aimed at reducing drug abuse. All evidence was kept confidential, of course. In May 2007, Purdue Pharma pleaded guilty to deceiving the public regarding OxyContin's addiction risk and agreed to pay $600 million, which is one of the most significant pharmaceutical settlements in the U.S. history. The company's president, Mitchell Friedman, 
top lawyer Howard R. Udell and former chief medical officer Paul D. Goldenheim also pleaded guilty as individuals to charges of misbranding, which is a criminal offense, and agreed to pay a total of $34.5 million in fines. Specifically, Friedman, Udell, and Goldenheim agreed to pay $19 million, $8 million, and $7.5 million, respectively. Also, three senior executives were charged with a felony in order to complete 400 hours of community service and drug treatment programs. Ready to be pissed off? Okay, sure. Lay it on me. Purdue paid the executives fines and legal costs and even gave two of them a bonus for their trouble. They paid all of those for them. And gave them a bonus. And then gave them bonuses on top of that. Yes. What the actual fuck? So now this is, and it's mentioned in the documentary, but we personally have talked about it privately ourselves. Do you remember when we talked about um, rich people, you know, doing whatever the fuck they want to do? And parking fines and speeding tickets and whatever, because to them, it's not an extra, like, oh my God, this is the fine, this is the punishment. It's simply, this is how much it costs to do. To do what I want to do. Exactly. They don't view it. They don't put it as important. Because they were making $9, million, $9 billion. $9 billion in a year they're making. And then they have to pay a $600 million fine. Why would you not? The, what is $600 million out of $9 billion? Why does not you just continue to do what you're doing and say, this is just what it costs to do what to do it? Yeah. It's like, that's nothing to me. Okay, sure. I'll pay this and then I'm con- going to continue to do what I've been doing all along because I can afford it. Because I can. Yeah, exactly. Kentucky officials also sued Purdue on October 4th, 2007 due to the abuse of Oxy in Appalachia which, like I said, a very hard-hit area, the coal mining Appalachia. Attorney General Greg Stumbo and Pike County officials demanded millions from the company, and on December 23, 2015, the state settled with Purdue for $24 million. In 2009, there were so many deaths related to Life Tree Pain Clinic, good old Dr. fucking Webster, that the medical examiner reported him to the state medical board. In 2010, there was a raid, and records showed that patients were prescribed an unusually high amount of opioids. The record also confirmed over 100 patient deaths due to overdose. However, all charges against Dr. Webster were dropped due to lack of evidence. And this motherfucker still claims he's not the problem. Oh my god, I can't even believe it. That's just ridiculous. And so he probably continued to do those things because he got off, right? Or yeah, yeah. still doing his. It was just like whatever. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. A 2017 article in the New York Times named the Sacklers as one of the richest families in America, with a net worth of 13 billion dollars. I bet they are. All of this off the backs of killing how many people? I can only imagine because if it was a hundred just at that one clinic, think about it. You know. Because of this article and others like it, the organization Prescription Addiction Intervention Now, or PAIN, was founded by a photographer named Nan Golden. The organization pressures museums and other cultural institutions to stop associating with the Sackler family because they, you know, just like the Rockefellers, lots of money, 
lots of charitable donations. There's a wing of the Met that is the Sackler wing, you know, and so they're urging them just fucking stop. Stop taking their charity. Right. Because it's blood money. Exactly. It's like, why would you want to be associated with something like that? It's like you're almost like, I wouldn't say promoting them, but like you're like saying like, look, look at what these people can do. Right. Like they're great. Like they're so great. We're going to have this way, you know, named after them because, you know, but it's like they killed probably thousands, probably hundreds of thousands. Who the hell knows? Oh, I know. And we'll get there. Okay. In January 2017, the city of Everett in Washington state filed a lawsuit against Purdue, claiming that the city incurred additional costs due to the use of OxyContin, and Purdue failed to take action despite noticing suspicious sales patterns of their product as agreed upon in the 2007 lawsuit. The allegations stated that Purdue did not adhere to legal agreements to monitor suspicious excess orders or potential black market use. The lawsuit further claimed that deceitful doctors created false clinics, the pill mills, and used homeless individuals as patients to purchase OxyContin, which was then sold to the citizens of Everett. The lawsuit also alleged that OxyContin was illegally sold in the black market out of legal pharmacies in Los Angeles with distribution points in Everett contributing to the city's predicament. Purdue was aware of this practice and the overuse and sale of their product, but failed to report it to the DEA for several years because they were making money, so they didn't give a fuck. The lawsuit seeks an undisclosed amount of reimbursement for costs incurred by the city in areas such as policing, housing, health care, rehabilitation, criminal justice system, Park and Recreation Department, as well as for the loss of life or impaired quality of life of the residents of Everett. Because when you think about it, it is not just affecting that one person that's dying of an overdose. Oh, yeah. It does contribute to a lot of crime and stuff happening because these people are desperate and they need their next fix. And so they're robbing and they're burglarizing and, and, uh, you know, other, and, and other things, another violent crime. Right. Well, you know, so probably the crime in those areas was extremely high also because yeah. of all of this. Like, I can only imagine. Which is why those supermarkets didn't want to carry it because they didn't want to get robbed. Well, they didn't want to get robbed. They're like, hell no, I don't want any part of that. Here. Six states, Florida, Nevada, North Carolina, North Dakota, Tennessee, and Texas, filed lawsuits charging deceptive marketing practices in May of 2018. There had already been 16 other suits filed by other states and Puerto Rico by then. By January 2019, 36 states were suing the company. Wow. In 2019, Maura Healy, the Attorney General of Massachusetts, filed a lawsuit against Purdue Pharma, alleging that eight members of the Sackler family were personally responsible for deceptive sales practices and had micromanaged a deceptive sales campaign. And they did. It's all true. In response, Purdue Pharma claimed that there was a rush to vilify the company. <laughs> I'm sorry. You have to be kidding me. What? Because, like, people are jealous or something of you? Like, what the fuck? Well, they had, in 2008, introduced a savings card program for OxyContin, which offered discounts on the first five prescriptions to patients. And you're telling me that that's not a fucked up marketing technique? It of course is. That's truly fucked up. 
The company's internal data indicated that these discounts resulted in a 60% increase in the number of patients who continued taking OxyContin for more than 90 days. More than As it would. That's because they're like, hey, if I get this much for free, like, why not? Mm-hmm. Another lawsuit filed by Oklahoma, which alleged that Purdue's opioids contributed to the deaths of thousands of people, was settled for $270 million in March 2019. In August 2019, Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family were in talks to settle the claims for $10 to $12 billion. The proposed settlement involved Purdue Pharma filing for Chapter 11, which is bankruptcy, restructuring as a public beneficiary trust and the Sackler family relinquishing ownership in the company. The addiction treatment drugs developed by Purdue would be made available to the public free of cost and all of Purdue's profits would go to the plaintiffs. The Sackler family would pay $3 billion in cash and sell Mundy Pharma with another $1.5 billion from the sale proceeds being added to the settlement. However, the family would not face criminal charges for their role in the opioid crisis and would remain billionaires. Okay. I have thoughts about this. Okay, great that they're, like, gonna shut down the company and what they're doing and whatever. They're not. They're not shutting down the company. They are just stepping away from it. They're just gonna be handed it over. Well, they're handing it over to someone else, which, okay, that's fair. But, like, these people have no consequences for what... Not really. They did. I mean, they're, yeah, they're, they're not on fines, but they, again, they're still going to remain... They're still gonna re- this is just the cost to do what they did. It's just so ridiculous. It's like, when you think about, like, people that have so much money, they don't know what to do with it, that it's like, to them, this is like nothing. It's like, whatever. Mm-hmm. In September 2019, the New York Attorney General's office accused the Sackler family of hiding money by transferring at least $1 billion from company accounts to personal accounts overseas. So now they're they're money laundering as well. And they probably did. In October 2020, Purdue agreed to an $8 billion settlement that includes a $2 billion criminal forfeiture, a $3.54 billion criminal fine, and $2.8 billion in civil damages. The company would then plead guilty to three criminal charges and become a public benefit corporation under a trust that must consider the public health of Americans. Also, the Sacklers are not allowed to be involved in the new company. And they shouldn't be allowed to be involved. No, they wouldn't. It doesn't matter because they made their money. They've got enough money to live on for generations. Forever. Yeah. In September 2019, Purdue filed for bankruptcy in White Plains, New York, shortly after reaching a tentative settlement with state and local governments that were suing the company over the cost of the opioid epidemic. However, many states rejected the proposed settlement, claiming that the Sackler family committed fraudulent conveyance by allegedly hiding offshore funds, which we just said they they took the $1 billion, or at least one, at, at least at one least billion. that much, yeah. Most of the Sackler family's wealth is not held in Purdue, and states are seeking to hold individual family members liable for the cost of the opioid epidemic. And I'm sorry, but they should. They should. I, I agree. And that's why, like, when you said that, my mind was blown because it's like they're not going to go after them as individuals. They're just, like, finding the company and that's it, and then they're going to hand it over to someone else to be in charge of it, and they can't touch it at all anymore. But they're not personally being 
Right. Held accountable. How but yeah. And finding them each individually, like, that does mind-blowing to me. An audit in December 2019 by Alex Partners revealed that the Sacklers withdrew $10.7 billion from Purdue after the company began to face legal scrutiny. So they said at least one, it was actually over 10. So close to 11. For 10? And they moved all of that money overseas? Mm-hmm. In 2021, the Sacklers requested a controversial, non-consensual third-party release to protect themselves and their assets from lawsuits related to the opioid crisis. So basically, they want to protect all of their current money and belongings and everything and say that they are exempt from whatever they might have to pay. So even if they end up with all these fines and everything... They can still keep their big mansions and their cars and all their other assets because they're exempt from having to be involved in the fines. But how how do they figure now? That makes like no sense. And why? Just because they're special? Yeah, that's what they wanted. That, that they think they're special. Troubling God. In response, U.S. Representatives Carolyn Maloney and Mark DeSaulnier in, introduced the Sackler Act which would prevent non-bankrupt individuals from being released from lawsuits filed by states, municipalities, or the U.S. government. So they, he, they introduced, basically in a nutshell, uh, an, an act to say that if you are not actively in bankruptcy, if then fuck you. Pay, pay the fines. We don't care what you have. We don't care what you have to say as long as you have the funds available. Pay the damn yep. fines. Yep. If you're not bankrupt yourself, then you are liable for these. So good for them. Good for them because they should be 100% liable. In September 2021, Purdue won approval for a $4.5 billion plan that would dissolve the company and restructure it into a public benefit corporation, like we said dedicated to addressing the opioid crisis and compensating those harmed by its products. The settlement would be funded by a combination of Sackler family payments, insurance, and ongoing business operations. However, the settlement was overturned in December 2021 by Judge Colleen McMahon of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York, who ruled that bankruptcy law did not permit a judge to release the Sacklers from civil liability. So she's saying, you know... Bankruptcy doesn't really matter. You can't be released from this liability. Well, that's good. And Congress is considering statutory restrictions on these releases, meaning, you know, just like you have a statute of limitations on when you can report certain things that are going to do a certain amount of years for this kind of stuff as well. In March 2022, members of the Sackler family who own Purdue Pharma reached a new settlement with eight states and the District of Columbia to resolve the litigation. Under this new settlement agreement, the Sacklers will pay between $5.5 and $6 billion to a trust that will be used to pay the claims of opioid creditors, including states, victims of addiction, hospitals, and municipalities. That is also a good thing. Mm-hmm. The settlement is subject to review and approval by an appeals court and bankruptcy court confirmation. So, we talked about how many people it must be, you know, that have been affected by this. I can only imagine since 1999, there have been more than 932,000 deaths from drug overdoses. Of those, 75% involved opioids. 
which means they're responsible directly for over 699,000 deaths. So it's just mind-blowing, you know? And they don't feel responsible, which is horrible. Like, I can't even believe that they don't feel bad about that. And then you have doctors like doc Dr. Webster, Webster, still, to this day, think they did nothing wrong and continue to do the same shit. And speaking of a Dr. Webster, we had Carol Bosley, who passed away, a drug overdose. Her husband, uh, Roy, I will leave you with a quote from him. If we don't learn from things, we go nowhere. So true, King. <laughs> I, I mean, honestly. That's the thing. If you don't learn from things, then you, you're absolutely right. You're stuck. You're you're just stuck in the same place doing the same shit and not really gaining anything from it, like he said. Mm-hmm. I want to say the stuff that I read, there was like in 2020 alone, over 90,000 overdose deaths in this country. All tracing back to the deceptive marketing of these drugs. Right. Something that isn't addictive. And then that knowing that it is and that it's being abused and that it's being diverted to the streets and then just not caring because it didn't matter to them because it wasn't affecting them personally and they were still making money. Exactly. It's, I, I think, some of the most wide-scale fraud I've ever seen. Yeah, it's truly sickening. And, and then here we still are with the problem only worsening and nothing's being done. Yeah, st it's there's still nothing being done. I mean... I mean, honestly, like, how many people, like, like, literally, I could, like, just go on about the amounts of people I know personally that have been affected by... Mm -hmm. Like I said, we all know somebody. If we don't have somebody in our own lives, we know somebody that does. Now, I have not personally been affected to the point where, like, someone that I am immediately close with has been an addict <laughs> or has passed away. I've but never. I know people. Yeah, I brand my my ex, my most recent ex. He lost his best friend to an opioid overdose, mm -hmm. and, and hearing him talk about it was heartbreaking. Oh yeah, for sure. I I can't even imagine. Like I, I I could not imagine losing my best friend or a family member or a child. It's insane to this because these people irresponsibly marketed it and were deceitful and right. straight up fraudulent with exciting things. So I'm going to list some resources in the show notes. Um, you know, I mean, we may have people who are addicted listening. You never know. And we are certainly not judging you if you are. Or you might have somebody that you suspect is addicted and you would like to get them some help. I'm going to put some of that stuff in the show notes, some resources for you. And, uh, you know, if always, as, as always, if it seems too good to be true, it is. it is. And if you want to find us on our socials, we're on Facebook, Too Good To Be True Podcast. We're on Instagram and TikTok at Too Good To Be True Pod. If you would like to send us an email, we're at Too Good To Be True Pod at Outlook.com. And also on our main page, you can give us a voice note if you want and tell us to include it in the show. Or you can support us monetarily so that we can get, you know, better equipment. And thanks for listening. 
Bye. Bye. Justine had brought in this like venison sausage and some cheese, like a redneck charcuterie. <laughs> redneck charcuterie. <laughs> so I had that. And I got home and had a heart attack over fucking Ellie. The, the cat is blame in our early grave. Early grave. I got home and she's always playing with the door stopper because they like to pull it back and watch it boing back and play as and she's playing with it, and she's chewing on it. And I look, and I realize it's missing the cap. That little end piece that goes on yeah. that plastic piece. I'm like, son of a bitch. And I'm looking around for it. I'm like, oh, my God, she eat it. What if she ate it? That's not good. I don't think that's good. Sometimes they can just pass. Like, sometimes they can't. I don't know what this level is. So this was 645. So I'm going, the was still open. So I called them. And I'm like, I don't even know. I said, is this an emergency situation? Is she going to pass it? Or is this a, we need to do emergency surgery kind of deal? And they and the girl goes, well, I would advise you to just go to the emergency vet in Watsontown. And I was it's like, like fucking A. I was like, this is going to be like a $1,000 bill for this cat. And she may not have even swallowed the goddamn thing. And I don't know because I can't find it. So I'm like freaking out because she's my baby and I don't want her to die or anything. And I'm like, one more pass. I'm going to make a one more pass to the room. Just a really good check before I immediately go into full-on panic, throw her in the car, start driving. And so I had my phone out. I turned on the, the flashlight, and I'm looking around, and I found it under the bed. Way up towards the headboard piece, she had it lodged between the luggage that I'm storing under the bed and the wall. So I found that, and I'm like, good. I don't have to worry about it. I know this little bitch did a similar fucking thing this morning. She gave me two heart attacks within 24 hours. So I put that, I was like, I am not putting that back on there. No. I put it in a drawer. I didn't want to throw it away. I put it in a drawer. I was like, I'll super glue the bitch back on before we move. That way it's on there. And But no, not now. Never again. She can't have anything that can come off that easily. Well, that little um, voodoo doll thing that Jen had gotten me to burn the incense with that little thimble-looking piece or whatever that's on the inside of it where you put the stick. Well, a little bitch has been climbing on the bookshelf now, which she hasn't done since we moved here, but now all of a sudden we're into that. So she had knocked that down. I noticed one of the pins was out of it. I found that pretty easily on the floor, but then I look at it and the fucking thimble thing is gone. I'm like, what if she swallowed that now? <laughs> How she could have swallowed that? I'm like, oh, oh my God. God, why is she doing this to me? So once again, twice within 24 hours, I'm on the floor on my hands and knees with my fucking flashlight looking for a piece to make sure that this cat isn't going to kill herself. And I found that one also under the bed, all the way over on the other side where I have some shit stored. Couldn't forward, and she's really taking them on a journey. Why? Why is she doing this all of a sudden? She's also gotten into that hat that I have hanging over the bed. She's gotten into buffing that off the wall. Oh, we're out of diet. I walked in my room the other day, and Katie was wearing the fucking hat. We get one of her. Trying to look at her room. Yes, she was on the pillow, and she knocked it off. And she is just wearing the net then. Oh, but I can't understand.